It's just not possible to gain that much in value that quickly with declining revenue. And that's when I really had the epiphany that investing was not about stocks and bonds. Investing is about innovation. The belief is if there's a new piece of information, that it will be instantly incorporated into the price of the stock or the bond or whatever. But that's not how people change their minds. Welcome back. I'm Hayden Brain, and you're listening to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. William Jay is the founder and CEO of Hamilton Investment Management. The multi-billion dollar asset manager specializes in private equity investments and institutional grade digital asset strategies. But it was William's decades of experience investing in China's equity markets that we focused on today. William was the chairman of equity capital markets for Macquarie Banking Group, a global heavyweight managing over $520 billion in assets. In that role, William managed the firm's greater China capital market interests and principal investment activities. I asked William for his outlook on China stock markets in 2022. William cited the political environment as a longer-term headwind, but also pointed to policy easing in the short term. We subsequently discussed the impact of regulation on China's tech leaders, and I finished by asking William for his sector to watch this year. Enjoy. Welcome, William. It's great to have you on the show. So uh, how, how are things with you? You're based in London, I think. Yes, yes. Um, yes, I said, uh, I'm based in London and uh, thank you for having me. And um, it's the beginning of the year, so uh, we're quite busy right now. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine so. Um, okay, well, I, I've got an intro question here that won't necessarily flow chronologically with the rest of the questions in the interview, but it will give listeners an early indication of one of the focuses of, of today's discussion. Uh, 2021 was a brutal year for, for China tech investors, but in your opinion, is the worst in the rear view mirror now, do you think? Well, I think for, for tech stocks in China, I think the devaluation is getting attractive. But as you know, like uh, all investments in China, we have to consider the political environment as well. So, I mean, the valuation is attractive. And uh, wh- whether it's, it's a good time to buy, we still need to, um, to see the political environments and, and uh, uh, you know, the regulatory uncertainty is actually always an issue. So um, I think if the market stabilizes, I think uh, it's, it's actually the, the valuation is actually quite attractive, um, you know, for investors to 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 start to look at it. Yeah, interesting. I, I want to return to regulation and definitely valuations as well further into the interview. But let's set the rest of the conversation in in context, I guess, by just looking at your background briefly. Uh, I mean, you've had a long, successful investment career already, but I thought we could focus on your most recent role prior to Hamilton to. To, as I say, set the rest of the uh, interview in context, you were the chairman of equity capital markets for Macquarie, where you managed its greater China capital markets and principal investments for, for over 10 years, I believe. So if such a thing existed, what, what did a typical day look like for you? What were you doing on a daily basis in that role? Well, um, my role is actually both uh, origination and execution. So it has to, you know, two different days, put it this way. I mean, uh, a typical origination, you know, I, I have to plan in advance, you know, to, um, to try to do research and see um, what clients, you know, they, they need funding or uh, IPO and things like that. And then we have to do a lot of research and prepare presentations, make appointments with the chairman of the company and try to um, 
um, solve their problems or potential problems. And, and uh, you know, once we get the mandate, you know, to, to do the fundraising or merger and acquisitions for them or IPO for them, you know, we have to form a team and do a lot of um, analysis and, and things like that. You know, for, for example, for IPO, you know, we, we are the one to organize all the professionals, accountants, lawyers, valuers, and, you know, uh, industry experts and things like that. And uh, scope for the process of dealing with the stock exchange. So it's, it's actually, um, you know, it's, sometimes we have to manage different projects at the same time. So it's just a very busy, um, you know, uh, a lot of traveling as well. So it's, um, uh, it's a very um, exciting um, job to do, actually. Yeah, yeah, it sounds much. I'm sure you saw a lot of interesting companies list as well. So definitely a fascinating role. Um, and just whilst we're on um, Macquarie, uh, as, as kind of your role, uh, overseeing greater China capital markets, I thought I'd pick your brains about a couple of myths that seem to exist uh, in relation to China equity markets, particularly amongst international investors, those not based uh, domestically in China. And perhaps you can help bust one or two of those myths now. To what extent do you think China's capital markets are liberalizing? Like, How close are they to resembling US or even European equity markets in that respect, do you think? I think in general, you know, China uh, really wants to liberalize, right? But the the bigger and well, the bigger environment is actually they have to. I mean, or, or when 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 we talk about China, we have to think about the uh, politics. So I mean, in a way, the um, uh, the the capital market. I mean, all the participants they they really want to um, you know learn from the Western world. They want to liberalize, uh, but they have a big constraint. It's actually the political constraint. So they have to serve the uh, the political objectives. So this makes it uh, a very difficult um, situation. So, so you, you see a lot of the um, infrastructure, a lot of the organizations, they, they are actually a quite market economy. But uh, when it goes to, um, you know, when government wants to do something, they have to follow. So I would say it's actually not a fully liberalized, you know, uh, capital markets. And it's actually quite difficult for them to be independently liberalized because you have to follow the whole, um, you know, politics. Yeah, this, this, is, this is the difficult part, actually. Yeah, great. And I might follow up with a question about that later when we return to look at sort of the outlook for Chinese equities. But whilst we're on your career, we might as well speak about Hamilton now, because obviously you're you know, the CEO of the investment manager currently. And I was interested, it's a question that I tend to ask sort of CEOs and founders of, of companies. What do you think sets Hamilton apart from peers in this space? What, what do you think gives you your edge and makes you different? Well, I think the first of all, you know, we um, we always um, plan ahead. You know, we, we we don't want to follow what other people are doing, and actually, this is this is a difficult part. And also, we treat um, every dollar of investors as, as ours when, when we do investment decisions. And I think it's, it's lucky that you know our returns has been uh, doing very well. And so, when we talk to the investors, ask them to um, to invest further. I mean, uh, we, we we have a lot of um, investors actually follow. Yeah, I think the key thing is actually we have to think ahead of you know what are the trends, and you know do a lot of analysis and make sure that uh, you know the the things that we are investing are actually the, the right sectors, the right companies, and yeah, things like that. Yeah, okay. And your philosophy or your strategy is is long biased, value oriented. Um, what do you think that long value bias looks like in in real terms? Like, what sorts of opportunities does that offer up? I wonder whether you could. Kind of make that a little bit less abstract for the listeners. Well, yeah, we mentioned kind of uh, we focus on value and you know kind of a long-term growth of the companies. 
So when we select companies, we, we really want to select the, uh, you know, good companies with value, good management, and, and you know, uh, internally we'll, we'll, we'll perform a lot of uh, stress tests and analysis on the company. So I think um, we just want to ignore the, the you know, short-term you know, daily, daily movement of the, of, of the stocks for a soft price, for example. And so we do a lot of analysis on, on the sector and also very important on the political um, environment as well. I mean, this is something a lot of the uh, fund managers would ignore. Um, some fund managers would just focus on, like, this is a good company, we invest, but uh, probably ignoring the macro picture. So this is something that we will also uh, analyze as well. And it's just quite lucky that our, our investments returns are, are pretty good. I mean, uh, of course, we have different categories. So, you know, we have uh, private equity investments. We have also a trading fund, algorithm fund. So our private equity investments are, you know, pretty good. And we select only you know, companies with 25% um, uh, above, you know, uh, internal rate of return to, to invest. Um, and uh, our trading fund actually performance is excellent. It's been over 50% or more. So, yeah, I mean, the returns has been uh, doing well. Yeah, great. And you mentioned sort of appreciating the macro environment there. To what extent is is the strategy or, I mean, you've got several strategies, but what what would you say as to your philosophy when identifying equities? Is it a top-down approach, i.e. appreciating the macro and then looking at the sectors and then stocks within that? Or do you actually come from the bottom up? Uh, it's kind of interesting. Um, yes, we, we are kind of a, a top-down approach, but uh, we also do bottom-ups. Uh, this this uh, differentiates us uh, a bit on other funds as well. We actually, uh, for example, uh, like uh, we invest a lot in uh, China, a huge amount in China. And uh, but actually, um, two years ago, we we start to reduce a lot and kind of uh, avoid a lot. And uh, for the past two years, as you know, like last year, for example, Chinese stocks drops a lot. The Hang Seng Index drops fourteen percent. You know, the MSCI Index drops like uh, more than that, twenty three percent. So in a way, um, we kind of uh, avoid the downturn a bit because we we really um, do both, right? Top down approach. We, we analyze the whole um, macroeconomic environment, geopolitical environment. Uh, at the same time, you know, when when we invest, we we really do a lot of analysis on on the company itself. Mm. So it's kind of kind of a combination of both. Yeah, great. And to what extent do you employ a, an ESG sort of overlay or screen within your process? Yes, yes, of course. Like uh, at the end of the day, this is actually a, a metric the long term uh, developments, right? So I think right now, you know, we have to have a good governance. You know, we have to care about the environment. So I mean, this is actually the the way to substantiate, right? So so you know the, the way to uh, have a sustainable uh, business. So that's why this is actually uh, part of our considerations. Yeah, I see. It's sort of almost inherently built in uh, as a result of that longer term approach. Yeah, great. So now I want to spend the rest of the interview discussing Chinese equities, given your experience and and just the general interest surrounding the region right now. Um, firstly, a lot of strategists are, are actually quite bullish on China equities heading into 2022, um, saying they're due for a rebound after after the regulatory crackdowns and a slowing economy hammered markets like last year, like we've already discussed. I wonder then how optimistic you are about the outlook for China stocks right now. How bullish are you, do you think? Well, uh, I think, first of all, the, uh, the valuation is actually attractive. I think, um, I mean, in terms of, um, uh, yeah, from the investment point of view, I think this is, this is actually a good time to buy. I mean, like, uh, a lot of people, they forecast that 2022 would be a good rebound. I mean, I, I think so as well. 
but there is a, a very important consideration is actually how is the political environment going? I mean, the, the real economy is actually not doing well. Mm. The, the real economy is actually quite bad. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, there will be a 20th, you know, Congress coming like uh, in October. So right, the stability is the key. So the, they don't want the economy to um, to deteriorate further before the, the uh, 20th Congress. So so I think this is the one of the key considerations that, you know, the, the market will be stabilized. So given the um, valuation is attractive right now, so I think um, it's actually um, you know, uh, good to consider to invest. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned the sort of economy being just generally depressed across the board. Uh, the recent economic data was mixed, I suppose, to say the least. I mean, industrial output was picking up relative to recent historic levels, but retail sales, for example, massively missed expectations. So do you expect there to be further policy easing to actually try and stimulate economic growth in the short term? Um, yes, I think there will be probably further easing of the uh, uh, the policy. Uh, as, as I just mentioned, I mean, the real economy is actually not good. Um, so you see that like uh, December last year, there's a, you know, the, um, a release of 188 billion US you know, of reserves into the banks and just to stabilize the, the market, especially the property market as well. So, so in general, I, I believe that there will be you know, further release of the, um, the reserve, mainly to stabilize the market uh, because the real economy is not doing well. Yeah, absolutely. And China markets, are, as a result of the events of last year, I suppose, are just desperate for liquidity, it seems, at the moment. Uh, and you mentioned the cut to the reserve requirement, um, which took place uh, back in December last year. Do you think that could be interpreted as a sign that China is beginning an easing cycle of sorts that could actually see credit conditions relaxed further? Well, I, I see this as probably um, kind of a short-term remedy for the situation. I mean, I, I don't think in the long term they, they actually change the, um, the situation. But as I mentioned, uh, 2022 is actually an important year uh, in China, especially on the uh, political side. So I think um, there will be further easing of the uh, of the um, reserves um, just to stabilize, make sure that the market would, uh, would hold. Yeah, interesting. And just incidentally, were you surprised by the divergence in monetary policy that um, China obviously exhibited away from the global consensus, which obviously was not to conduct that similar sort of monetary policy? It, just, it, it seemed interesting to me that China kind of went at odds to the rest of the globe. What's your take on that? <laughs> Well, um, I, I'm not surprised because China, um, as I mentioned, when, when we look at China, I mean, we have to think of the uh, uh, political need. And this is actually uh, politically, um, that, that is a requirement uh, in, in, in this time of, you know, they have to do this. And again, like uh, the easy way to interpret is actually um, what will happen like uh, for the coming several years in terms of the uh, whole environment, uh, China versus the, the rest of the world. And also China internally, the stability, uh, the political environment, things like that. And uh, if you think more from, from this macro view, um, it's easier um, for you to predict what's going on um, in the future. Yeah, interesting. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. Well, let's hone in then on a sector of particular interest, I suppose, which is China tech. We mentioned it at the start of the call. Regulatory risks still exist, of course, uh, particularly for that sector of the market. 
to what extent would you advise investor caution when looking at Chinese tech stocks at the moment? Uh, yes, I think uh, uh, because I think the uh, the regulatory uncertainty still exists. Uh, but on the other hand, the, the valuations are actually getting quite attractive uh, for for tech stocks. So I think this is uh, you know I, I would be cautious. But on the other hand, you know would would um, as I mentioned, look at the uh, the macro environment how it evolves. Yeah, interesting. And I guess to approach regulation from the other side of the coin, it could be seen that in the long term, these regulations being implemented are kind of being done so for the right reasons, I guess, you know, to protect against Chinese internet companies misusing customer data, for example. Do you think that can actually be seen potentially as a long-term tailwind for for the sector? Well, I guess the um, uh, recent regulations on on tech stocks, you know, there are several reasons for that. Of course, one of the reasons, as as you mentioned, is to protect the uh, customer data. So uh, on that part, um, yes, I think definitely, you know, uh, in the the long run, it would be good uh, for the tech sector to to further develop. But on the other hand, there are also um, other reasons, you know, um, because uh, the government wants to have more control on the customer data. Right. So on the one hand, is actually make sure that the companies are, are not misusing the, the customer data. But on the other hand, the government also wants to have a control, which uh, would also, you know, in the long run, it would actually uh, may not be good uh, for the development. So kind of uh, two sides. So uh, again, uh, this is uh, uh, we have to consider from a political point of view, uh, what, will, what will happen further. You know, we, we see some if, if there are more and more government control on, on the private companies. And, you know, the, the impact for that from an investor's point of view would be huge as well. Yeah, absolutely. And if we uh, look at the performance of markets uh, and, and kind of major indices in the region as well, the sector, uh, the tech sector has come off significantly from its Feb 2021 peak uh, with the Hang Seng Tech Index, for example, down over 48% when I checked yesterday since then. I guess what our listeners will be interested to know is whether we see this as an inflection point, whether things will start to change. Like, do you think we've seen the bottom for the Hang Sec Tech Index, for example? Um, yes, in, in a way. I mean, it, from, from, a, from a pure valuation point of view, yes, I think this is, uh, as I mentioned, this is, uh, in terms of pure valuation point of view, it's really getting attractive. Yes, I, I agree with that. Yeah. But whether you know, there will be a further impact, uh, it all depends on um, as I mentioned, the macro environment. Yeah, absolutely. And if we talk about valuation, then if we dig into that, I mean, Jeffries would agree with you. I read that their analysts are saying that with some of the bigger tech companies trading at around 18 times PE, um, a reasonable valuation range in their minds would actually be 20 to 22. So there's a bit of bit of room there to grow. But if we look at the other half of the equation, Jeffries are actually anticipating earnings growth of 7% for the MSCI China in 2022 which is compared to a, a, a larger consensus estimate of actually 15%. So, you know, I, I, I don't necessarily need specifics from you here, but I'm just interested in whereabouts you think those that earnings percentage might be. Is it towards the lower end of that range or, or higher perhaps? Well, I, I uh, tend to agree with Jeffrey's um, earnings estimates, like kind of uh, on a lower end uh, because the, the tech companies uh, also uh, cannot exist you know, by, by itself independently, right? So it also depends on the whole economy. As I mentioned, in the pandemic still going on, I think the economy actually um, is not, it's not doing well. I mean, especially China wants to adopt the, um, you know, uh, the zero COVID strategy, 
right? So it, it would actually hurt the economy as well. So that's why, I mean, I tend to agree on, on a lower range of the estimations for the growth. Sure. And just to dig into that 0% um, or the zero COVID strategy you just mentioned there, what exactly does that look like in real terms? Are they essentially saying, you know, we need to just move on from COVID now, um, which is obviously the case uh, politically here in the UK. It's it's starting to be seen as an endemic rather than a pandemic, for instance. Is that is there a similar sort of attitude in China at the moment? Well, I, I think what, what happens is that actually, if they want to adopt the zero uh, COVID strategy, that means that whenever there is actually a case, they would... Um, so they're, they're not releasing the economy, put it this way, right? So everything is not back to normal. Basically, what they want is actually to make sure that there's no no cases further. So uh, in order to do that, you know, the, the economy, a lot of, a lot of you know, uh, activities has to be um, restricted. And uh, whenever there is a case, I mean, they take it very seriously and make sure that, you know, the whole area is locked, for example. So, so a lot of activities, um, you know, especially consumer activities, would be, would be impacted. So um, that means that it, it will actually hurt the economy in general, in the short term, at least. Um, so a lot of the other countries, they, they try to relax um, this kind of COVID strategy so that the economy can back to normal. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I hadn't appreciated they, they were kind of taking that more draconian mm. uh, stance. Um, so, that, so that's really yeah. interesting to hear. Um, and I guess, uh, you know, talking about Chinese tech uh, valuations, it would be remiss of us not to consider the impact of higher treasury yields on, on Chinese stocks as the Fed book set to hike from March this year. How detrimental do you think that could be to Chinese equity valuations, I guess, over the, the kind of medium term, if, if we forget sort of short-term price fluctuations? I think on the one hand, the, the Chinese equity valuations are attractive right now. And, you know, the Fed rate hikes and uh, it's kind of uh, taking into account a bit. So there will be impacts, but I don't think there will be, uh, you know, a serious impact, um, you know, in, in the medium term. It, it all depends on the economy, um, the Chinese economy itself. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, and as you say, they're attractive right now. So essentially, that's already priced in to an extent, I guess. Um, and so, so your view, just to clarify, is that the domestic sort of Chinese policy is is a far bigger, or will have a far bigger effect and impact on Chinese listed stocks. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Great. All right then. Well, let's um, move on to discussing another sector or, or area of the market that I've heard a lot of strategists and analysts talk about uh, in relation to Chinese equities. If the China stock market bounces back this year, as obviously a lot of people, as we've already discussed, anticipated to, some analysts are predicting that green energy, not big tech, will lead the way. What's your take on that? Are you, are you bullish on green energy stocks in China at all? Um, yes, I think, I think um, you know, uh, China wants to, um, you know, to to become a carbon neutral um, country by 2060, and, and I think they are putting a lot of emphasis on on the green energy. Uh, I do think that this is uh, actually a good sector um, you know, to invest and to to focus on. There's a great potential uh, given China is, is a huge country, so it's still a lot of potential. Yeah, it was interesting um, at COP26. Obviously, everyone or most countries agreed that they would go carbon neutral by a certain deadline. But obviously, China's deadline was was maybe further away than some other countries. How, how kind of, maybe credible is the wrong word, but how strongly will that renewables push be felt in China? Do you think that's something that they're definitely 
going to proceed with and proceed with emphasis? I think the government realized that this is actually um, this is something that is right to do, and actually for, for long term development, this is this is a must to do as well. So I think um, the government is pushing uh, pushing on on this area. The key thing is actually, um, you know, as you know, China. When the government wants to do something, they can put all the resources, they can direct all the resources to to a particular sector. So, so I think um, they are they are doing that right now. So I think this this sector should should still have a lot of potential to develop. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I read in uh, Bloomberg in an article published uh, in December last year that actually Asia's five best performing uh, equity funds managing over a billion dollars all had one thing in common, which was they were actually betting large sums on a Chinese renewables push. So obviously that that same sentiment is is felt within the uh, the big Asia equity funds as well. Um, to what extent then, if we look at valuations again for this space, do you have a general impression of whether they are about right or perhaps overextended? Um, I know, for example, that a company uh, called Contemporary Amperex Technologies, so CATL, a large Chinese battery manufacturer for, for anyone unfamiliar with the company, is trading at 133 times earnings at the moment. We don't need to get into specifics uh, on individual stocks, but just generally, do you think that some of these valuations are overextended? Yes, I'm bullish on the sector, uh, but on the other hand, like this is this is a macro view, right, on the on the sector uh, in general. But uh, we have to also uh, take a very uh, detailed analysis on on the company itself. So I, I do believe that some of the uh, uh, companies are overvalued. Uh, at the end of the day, investment is about about the value, right? So so I mean about the price that that you invested and expect the price in the future. So uh, I do see some companies are overvalued uh, in, in this sector. So so we have to select very carefully, you know, which companies to invest. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and is there a particular uh, sub-theme within uh, green energy? So for example, is solar or is wind power, for example, are you, are you kind of more bullish on, on any one individual vertical or just generally across the board, green energy is, is, is a good place to be? Well, I think I think in general, um, the green energy is, is good, but of course, like uh, there are some other sectors, you know, w- which is a kind of clean energy, like uh, you know, also it's good. For example, electric vehicles also a good sector um, to focus on as well. Yeah, uh, I was going to reference electric vehicles. Um, new new energy cars uh, was the way I saw it labelled, but uh, that was actually the country's highest growth industry uh, last year, gaining uh, a huge one hundred and forty five point six percent. Uh, last year, for example. So do you think investors should expect to see similar momentum this year, having already grown so much in 2021? Um, I think um, the sector will continue to grow. Not sure whether they, they can have the same similar growth. But again, it depends on um, the overall uh, policy of Chinese policy. If, if, uh, if, if you know the Chinese government announced uh, you know a policy that you know uh, there you know uh, everyone needs to use uh, you know uh, uh, electric vehicles, for example, I mean the, the sector will grow immediately. So that's why when we analyze China, Chinese stocks, I mean we, we can't just um, just analyze the company itself. You know um, you have to take into account the whole whole environment. Like in, in 2021, um, when, when the Chinese government in education, you know, education companies, we, 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 don't, we don't allow this kind of uh, uh, you know, private education to develop, suddenly the whole sector collapsed. Right? So there's only one policy can change the whole environment for, um, you know, for the company to, 
um, you know, to to focus and would change the whole whole company. So they'll change the whole valuation of the company. Yeah, interesting. I mean, we saw the tutoring kind of business at home tutoring business uh, collapse as a result of a change in in policy. Um, do you think any other industries are kind of subject to a similar sort of policy or regulation change? Should international investors be worried about that sort of thing? Yes, I think there are some technology companies that would have uh, great potential in 2022, but uh, there are some also tech-related companies that there may be some impact as well. So it depends. So for example, high-performing computing. Uh, I think this is a good sector to to grow further uh, in 2022. So um, again, we have to uh, break it down into uh, different subsectors. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and on that point, uh, new and advanced technology is kind of under the spotlight as a result of the current state of US-China relations at the moment, to put it diplomatically. China, I guess, as a result of that, has had to invest significantly to build its own capacity in advanced technology. Are there any sort of subsectors or themes uh, within advanced tech in general that you would look to in 2022 or would advise investors to keep an eye on? Well, uh, well, uh, there is an interesting sector like uh, blockchain technology. Mm-hmm. I think, um, although like uh, China kind of bans crypto, but uh, the technology itself is actually developing um, very well globally, and I think uh, this is actually a sector that uh, investors can look at as well. I mean, it's, it's a, a little bit um, tricky sector uh, in China, but I'm th- I'm referring more of a blockchain technology yet. So I think this is actually uh, a growing sector um, in the world. And certainly, there are some good technology companies in China. Uh, they can they can develop, they can you know capture the opportunities as well. Yeah, really interesting. So you would suggest looking at blockchain technology and the infrastructure that that enables, as opposed to looking at crypto, which obviously is well, the, the mining of Bitcoin, etc., is banned at the moment in China. Yes, you made yes. that distinction. Okay, interesting. And how long? Do you think China can stick to that ban uh, against Bitcoin and crypto mining? Do you think that's something that's that's here to stay? Uh, this is a very um, interesting um, question. The reason is that uh, actually Chinese are the biggest investors uh, for uh, cryptocurrencies in the world, but a lot of them, they of course, they're hidden. <laughs> so I think I think the uh, the Chinese they they, they love crypto. Um, you know, for obvious reasons, like uh, because China in general is still a foreign uh, exchange control country, right? So, so a lot of people they uh, invest into crypto because, like, uh, you can flow freely all, all around the world. But on the other hand, uh, the Chinese government wants to have a central bank digital currency. So uh, that means that they don't want the you know their citizens to use any other cryptos, but um, central bank digital currency, their own current digital currency. So I think um, the ban um, of the um, Bitcoin, Ethereum. The, you know, or other cryptocurrencies probably will continue for for quite a long time. It's not that they, they don't welcome digital currency because they the government wants them to use the government's cryptocurrency. Yeah, absolutely. So they're just banning the others uh, to to prioritize the the government led cryptocurrency. The matter that I will. Yeah, I I completely see that. Exactly, exactly. But it's not easy. No, well... <laughs> it's not easy for, for the government to, to do that. Yeah. yeah, I guess that's kind of where my question came from, just because it's so sort of rampant throughout Europe and, and the rest of the world that for China to kind of steadfastly act against it um, 
well, it's, it's just another example of a divergence, I, I guess, away from the global consensus, which makes it an interesting point to discuss, I suppose. Yes, yes. Okay, well, that's, I think, a fascinating point to end the main body of the interview. Now, I'm going to move on to our quick fire question round. So this is a more generic list of questions. We ask the same questions to all of our guests and just a lighthearted way to, to end the episode. So feel free to answer in as little as one sentence or even one word. The first question is, what do you think the top or most frequent mistake investors make is? Well, I think um, uh, investors buy at the end of the cycle. <laughs> so in other words, basically, um, you know, you, you follow everyone's and then um, when the market is going crazy and then you just follow and so you're, you're buying at the highest price. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we've definitely heard that one before. That, that definitely rings true. <laughs> Number two, where do you go for investment or economic insights? Do you read specific publishers or websites, for example? Well, um, actually, we do a lot of research ourselves. Of course, you know, we, we read, you know, a, you know, a lot of um, articles, you know, um, uh, websites and things like that. Uh, but, but the key thing is actually, we don't follow the, you know, the, the trends that everyone's reading, really, or the articles, the analysis that everyone's is, is, is reading. And, and we, we tend to do our own analysis and, and also read something that, um, that is not the same as the market, put it this way. So we just we just do all, all the analysis. I think this is this is uh, this is the best way. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay, question three: What is the most memorable moment from your career to date? So, if you pass your mind back, is there one particular moment that sticks out? Uh, <laughs> probably, um, I left as a chairman of a, of an investment bank and uh, start my own investment funds. Is uh, um, yeah, it's, uh, I think. Uh, it's a very brave decision at that time because I had to fulfill a lot of my of, of my retained bonus and things like that, and uh, start something yourself. Uh, but uh, I think I'm, I'm very happy that I uh, I did that uh, at that time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it certainly seems to be paying off. And just interestingly, on that, was there? I asked this to to again, sort of founders and CEOs that we speak to. Was there a eureka moment that that kind of gave you the confidence to to set up that that new company? Well, I think I think um, you just need to accumulate sufficient experience, things like that, you know, and network, and, and you just need to uh, need, need the courage uh, to do it. I think um, the courage is actually uh, most important things uh, for for any uh, successful business or any career, you know, any, any anyone. I think is uh, we we see a lot of people, you know, they're they're very super super smart, you know, a lot of talent, but I think courage is is actually um, that we we don't see very often. So I think this is, this is very important. Yeah, no, definitely very true. Uh, our final question then is sort of the opto question. Uh, we aim to speak to the, the fund managers, the investors from all walks of life. They're outperforming benchmark returns. So we ask them, what is an investor's best source of alpha? So if you had to narrow it down to one thing, where do you think the great investors derive their outperformance? I think innovations, in a way, like uh, you do things, um, do something different from others, basically. You should not follow what other people are doing, which, which is um, easy. Um, I, I would say you just differentiate yourself and uh, um, innovation, I think, so, you know, is, is a key. Yeah. yeah, interesting. I just want to sort of pick up on that. Sorry, I know this is the quick fire question round, but that, that struck me as interesting. Um, is is that kind of a, a process point, sort of doing something differently within their investment process, or is it more actually just taking a contrarian view on markets? Like, 
if, if you kind of flesh that out a bit, what, what is that difference? Well, well I, I think both. Um, I think both. Um, even, even the way of doing things internally, um, you know, because uh, people tend to follow what other people are doing and even kind of ad- adapted. So basically, you know, we, we're educated to, to do things this way. Uh, but, but actually, this is, this is um, what other people are doing for 20, 30 years, but not, it may not be the right, right thing to do. Right, or it may not be suitable for um, in, in this period. Right, it may be suitable ten years ago, but may not be suitable here. Uh, so we just need to continuously review um, why we should do this. You know, uh, can, can the process be better? So this is on on, on the internal, um, even the internal organization, internal way of doing things, and on the investment part. Again, you know, what what to look at. Right. So and why we look at this, you know, uh, instead of uh, other other parameters right so other criteria things like that so i think i think that there are constant review of doing things uh investing so um i think this is this is important um otherwise the, the input is the same oh, i i always think that i'm not smarter than other people so so if if uh, if we we do the same thing with other people so the output will be the same and if you want to have alpha right and um, you have to do something different yeah absolutely i completely agree and actually a nice message to end the interview on Uh, that just leaves me to say thank you very much William for joining us on the podcast it's been a real pleasure thank you thank you very much thanks for listening everyone just a quick note before we sign off if you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets this might be of interest Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time. CoFruition.